Well, very good evening to everyone. Let's open up our Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we want to begin Q&A night in just a moment. And as you can see on the screen behind me, tonight's Q&A is actually going to kind of run headlong and intersect with our preaching theme for the year on taking sin seriously because tonight we want to address three questions that have been submitted to me about sin. Really good questions, I think, on tap this evening, and I'm eager to explore these questions with you as we work within the pages of Scripture for just a few minutes to try to mine out some good Bible answers. If this is maybe your first time being here for Q&A night, I don't think it'll take very long for you to figure out what exactly is going on here. This always seems to be a, a favorite Sunday night of the month here at Lakeside because it gives us a chance to kind of scratch where folks, I think, have an itch and you can see what God's Word has to say about the things that are that are on our minds and on our hearts, maybe just curiosities that we have. So it's always glad to have the opportunity to get to, to work together in the Word uh, in this way. Let's get right to the questions tonight. All three of tonight's questions do have to do with the subject of sin. And this first one is a question that does get asked just a lot. And it has been asked, I would imagine, for just generations upon generations, and it is this. Are there sins in the Bible that a person could commit for which there is no forgiveness at all? This is that age-old question about the unforgivable sin. Or sometimes it's referred to as the unpardonable sin. It is the thinking that there is some thing, or maybe there's more than one thing, that you could do in your life that is so terrible and so awful and is so sinful that even if you wanted forgiveness of God, you can't get it. Because it's absolutely out of reach, it's out of the question, it is unforgivable. And I want you to know that that's not an entirely baseless idea because there are actually a couple of passages, at least that immediately come to mind, in the Bible that have led folks to believe that there are unpardonable sins. And the first of those is right here in Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Would you read with me there, beginning in verse 4? In Hebrews 6 and verse 4, the Bible says, For it is impossible. Hold on to that word. It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. People look at that verse and they say, what about that passage? You read that there and it sure sounds like there's some sin being described there that you could commit that is so terrible, it is so awful that it is impossible to ever be restored and to ever be forgiven of that. And of course there are various sins that people think that what's that that's actually describing there in that passage. Most notably, the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've heard folks talk about that. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is the unpardonable sin. And again, that's not entirely baseless. There's a Bible verse that kind of would lead one to believe that. Let's grab that. Look in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus makes mention of this in three of the gospel accounts. We're just going to look at Luke's account here. In Luke chapter 12, look in verse number 10. The Bible says there, Jesus speaking, He says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man 
will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, come on, Joshua. What about that? Doesn't get any more direct than Jesus saying these words, will not be forgiven. And so folks, look at passages like that. And there's probably some others we could add to that list. And they look at those and they start start kind of wringing their hands a little bit. Start sweating bullets a little bit. You know, what if... What if I commit that sin? Maybe I've already committed that sin. Maybe I didn't even realize that I had committed that sin. And now, now I stand condemned for all eternity. There's nothing I can do about it. Jesus says, I can't be forgiven of that thing. No forgiveness to be found. I'm just lost, hopelessly lost with no no hope for eternity. Well, what do we say about all of that? What do we say when we're confronted with those passages and with this idea? Well, I suppose there's a couple of different things we could do. We could go into a very detailed discussion about what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. We could get really, really technical with all of that. We could go to Hebrews chapter 6 and we could pick it apart and we could try to figure out every single thing that's going on in that particular context. But I am, as I told my study buddies this afternoon... I'm a fan of simple. I like simple and I want to keep it simple this evening. And what I'm going to do is I want to answer this big question out of one passage. And it's in 1 John chapter 1. This is the passage that I always am going to go to whenever somebody gets worked up about unforgivable sins. And I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what that sin may be. If you're talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Maybe you come to me and you're talking about some really, really wretched, awful sin like, you know, a pedophilia or molesting a child or something along those lines. If you bring me a question about something that somebody said was an unforgivable sin, in about 60 seconds we're going to find ourselves in 1 John chapter 1. Because what does the Bible say in 1 John chapter 1? Look beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are, I think, really two big truths in that passage. Number one, don't go around claiming that you've never sinned. That's just a lie. Everybody's going to know that you're lying when you say that. And then secondly, if we confess our sins, He will cleanse us from, notice, all sin. Did you notice that there in verse 7? He will forgive, verse 9, All unrighteousness. Which sins? All of them. A-L-L. All means all. There is no limitation here. There is no fine print here. Your Bible does not have an asterisk in the middle of that passage there. And then down at the bottom of the page, there's a little footnote there that says, except if you did this, 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 or this. No. All means all. If you turn to the Lord... If you confess your sin to God, if you repent of your sins, if you seek God while He may be found, while you have time and opportunity, then you can, listen to me, 
You can be forgiven of any sin without exception. That means then, when the Bible talks about somebody who's not going to be forgiven of a sin, and then we look at that and we say, whoa, well, why can't that person be forgiven? Reading there in Luke 12, why ain't that person going to be forgiven? Reading Hebrews 6, why isn't that guy going to be forgiven? Well, then the lack of forgiveness in that situation, it's never going to be on God's part. It's not going to be His fault in this equation. What did what Sean 1 say? It said it twice in there, just in case we missed it. God wants to forgive you. God will forgive any sin. God is willing to forgive all sin. And so if there is some problem, some short-circuiting going on in this forgiveness deal, it's not on the Lord's end. He's not the one causing the trouble. God is willing and ready and wanting to forgive. If the problem isn't with God, then who's the problem with? The problem is with the person. The problem is with the sinner. The sinner who is not turning to God. That's why a person is not forgiven. Look at that passage. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6 again. Because if you read that passage, that's actually what the Hebrew writer says. In Hebrews chapter 6, why is it impossible for the person being described in this passage, why is it impossible for them to be restored and to be forgiven? Look at the last part, Hebrews 6 verse 6. It's impossible for that person because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. The person being described here is an unrepentant person. It is a person who won't turn to God. What would happen if that person in Hebrews 6 did turn to God? I'll tell you what would happen. 1 John 1, He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That person could be forgiven, but as long as they remain in that state of stubbornness and hard-heartedness and unrepentedness, then it's always going to be impossible for that person to receive forgiveness. And that is, I'll tell you, that's the same thing that's going on there in Luke chapter 12 with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's describing a person who just is persistent in their rejection of God and their rejection of the Spirit-inspired Word. And as long as he or she continues in that kind of mindset, resistant, willfully resistant, in that lifestyle, then that person, no, they're not ever going to be forgiven. And I think that's true as well of any other sin that we might want to plug in there and label as being an unforgivable sin. If you won't repent of it, then yeah, in that sense, it is unforgivable. But I'll say again, that's not God's fault. That's on the fault of the sinner. It is because that person, it may be because you will not turn to Him and receive the blessings that 1 John 1 promises, and that is being cleansed from all sin. I hope that short little exercise there, I hope that will help you a little bit. Maybe if that's something you've been struggling with, I hope that will help you sleep a little better at night. I've known people, and I don't want to make light of this in any way, I've known people who very seriously, they were literally in tears. They were so distraught because they were just sure that they had committed the unforgivable sin. And they were just sure that they were destined to spend an eternity in hell. If that ever describes you, what you need to do is you need to get your Bible out, turn to 1 John chapter 1, read that passage, believe that passage, then do what that passage says. If there's sin in your life and you've not repented of it, repent! Confess it to God. Make that right. 
God promises that He will forgive all sin to the repentant. Let's turn our attention now to a, really it's a textual question. I preached a couple of months ago uh, a sermon that was titled, Who Killed Jesus? You may remember that sermon. And in that sermon we kind of lined up all of the various culprits who at least had a hand in the execution of Jesus Christ. And one of those culprits that we identified was the Roman government. And we spent a little bit of time reading in John the 19th chapter at Jesus' interaction with Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time. And so it was out of that lesson, and having read this particular verse, came this question, and that is, what is the greater sin? What is the greater sin that Jesus makes reference to in his conversation with Pilate? Well, let's just get over there and let's just read that. Let's put that verse before us. In John the 19th chapter, Jesus is standing before Pilate. He's having to give his defense, if you will. Jesus isn't talking a whole lot at this particular point, but finally he does speak up. In John 19 and verse 11, I'm in Luke, I'll get over there in a minute. John 19 verse 11, Jesus answered him and he said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What does Jesus mean by that? I appreciate the questioner because this was somebody who was paying attention to the words of the passages that we were reading and that just stood out to them. What what exactly does that mean? Is Jesus implying here that there are some sins that are worse than others? That seems to maybe be our first thought, talking about a greater sin. What exactly is going on here? Well, once again, as is usually the case, let's let's just stay right here in this context. You remember that this is near the end of all of these bogus trials that Jesus is being ran through, this kangaroo court that they're shipping Him here and there, and doing all of this stuff. And Pilate is starting to get just a little bit aggravated at Jesus' silence. And so he kind of tries to poke and prod and provoke Jesus a little bit. Look at the verse on top. Look in verse 10. Verse 10, Pilate said to him, You won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? What's Pilate saying there? Pilate's saying, hey buddy, I'm a big deal here. Do you know who I am? You better pay attention to me. You better start doing what I say. Don't you know how important I am around these parts? And that is what leads to Jesus saying. Look in verse 11 again. Look at the first part of the verse. Jesus says, you wouldn't even have any authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. What Jesus says there is, He says, Pilate, you're not as big of a deal as you think you are. And of course, what Jesus is referencing in that statement there is He's referencing the sovereignty of God. That God is the one who's really in control here. God's the one who really is in charge of all the things that are taking place. But as Jesus talks with him about responsibility, Jesus then presses Pilate in the last part of the verse to think just about... Think about just how how much ownership he can really take for all of these events that are transpiring. And so he makes that statement. Look again at verse 11. He says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's worth asking, who is the he that Jesus is talking about here? Well, the he that he's talking about here is Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Caiaphas is the one who orchestrated the arrest and the trials and all the things that are kind of going on behind the scenes here with Jesus. And what Jesus says to Pilate here is he says, Pilate, you think that you're really a a big deal here? And you act like you're just a really, really important fella here? First and foremost, you'd be a nobody if God didn't grant you the authority that you possess. But then secondly, and even more so, you're not even the lead dog in all of this. You're just a cog in the wheel. You're just a small, tiny piece in the big machine here. You're just responding to what the Jews dumped on your front porch earlier this morning. You are being used by Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one who is actually responsible for the things that are going on here. And in fact, I do believe that that is what Jesus is talking about when he makes these statements. He's not necessarily talking about one sin being worse than another. He's talking about who is responsible for the actions that ultimately lead to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And that is, that is Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one who on the day of judgment, he will have to stand before God, he will have to answer to God for all of the things that have happened here. He's the one who is responsible. And so Jesus says to Pilate, Pilate, you can just stop with all of your bravado and all the your big macho act that you're putting on, all this, I'm so important, I'm the rainmaker around here, I make things happen. He says, you didn't even make this stuff happen. Caiaphas is the one who got the ball rolling here. That's what I believe Jesus is talking about in this particular context. Now, even as I say all of that, I want you to understand, by no means does that let Pilate off the hook. Absolutely not. But I would just, I would just say this. If you're going to have to stand before the Lord in the day of judgment, which of those two guys, Caiaphas or Pilate, which of those two guys would you rather be? The right answer is neither. But if you had to be one of those two guys, which one would you rather be? I'll tell you this for me. I'd rather stand before the Lord as a minion in the scheme to murder Jesus rather than being the mastermind of the entire plot to murder the Son of God. That's just me. Either sin would condemn you. But for one sin, there's a possibility Jesus may be indicating that there actually will be greater wrath for that. Because there is greater responsibility there. Caiaphas did bear greater responsibility there. His sin has more consequence to it. Both here on this earth, and maybe, possibly, maybe even greater consequences in eternity. Which actually then leads directly into this third and final question this evening, and that is this. In hell... In hell, will there be degrees of punishment for sin? Is it possible that there are some souls that will suffer worse than others? That's a chilling question to contemplate. Let me start by saying this, because I think this would be the next thing somebody's going to ask, and so I just want to address this right now. I do not believe, I do not believe that there are degrees of reward In heaven. I absolutely reject that idea. The idea that some folks, when they get to heaven, they're going to be put in the broom closet. And then other folks, they're going to get a big nice mansion and just, you know, they're going to get, you know, the the big doings in heaven. We're all going to be in heaven, but, you know, you're going to get you a little mansion over there and I'm at my big mansion over here. I reject that. What makes heaven heaven 
is that we will be with the Lord. That's what heaven is all about. That we will live with God. Heaven is all about being in the presence of God. And I'll tell you, that, that is as good as it gets. There's, there's just nothing else. Being with God, that is the best that it can possibly be. And so there's not going to be this idea of, you know, well, you're going to get the two-star accommodations in heaven. and Well, if you're really good, you're going to get the five-star treatment when you get to heaven. No. Every corner of heaven is a thousand-star rating on a scale of one to two. And so I'll say again, I soundly reject the idea of degrees of reward in heaven. Having said that, I do believe that there are some passages in the New Testament that might cause us to at least entertain the possibility that some in hell will suffer more. There are some passages that I believe, at least at first reading, tend to kind of lean in that direction. Can we just look at those? I just want to put them before us tonight. Look at Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse number 20. In Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 20, I'm in Mark. Boy, somebody's, somebody's been butchering my Bible this evening. All the passages and chapters are out of whack. Matthew chapter 11, look in verse number 20. Jesus says there, He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Well, what was He saying? Verse 21. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, notice this, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now again, I'm not, I'm not going to dive into everything that passage is talking about. But you read that and it does seem to indicate that maybe there will be differing levels of punishment on the day of judgment. Let's add to that what's said in Luke the 12th chapter. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 47, after Jesus has told several parables here, we're told there near the end of this particular parable, Luke 12, verse 47. He says, that servant, this is the parable about the, the faithful and the wise manager, verse 47. He says, that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Once again, you read that, it's not hard to maybe kind of at least get the impression that maybe there might be some degree, some distinction of punishment in eternity. How about in the book of Hebrews chapter 10? In Hebrews chapter 10, in my study with the youngsters this evening, we, we spent some time in Hebrews the 10th chapter. And we read these verses, and we got done reading them, and everybody was like, Whew, that was heavy. It's hard stuff. Let's read it. Hebrews chapter 10, look in verse 28. Hebrews 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Boy, that passage, and that's in the context of talking about somebody who, who once was serving God, but they start sinning willfully and deliberately, turning away from God. You look at that phrase there in verse 29. Worse punishment. It's hard not to think. I, maybe the Bible is talking about degrees of punishment. Let me throw one more verse in this connection in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, maybe a familiar verse to some of us as it talks about, kind of paints a little bit of a picture of the judgment scene, the Lamb's book of life, and how all that's going to play out, some of the things that John saw. Look in Revelation chapter 20, talking about the book of life, and how that is this book that records your life. How you lived. Look at what's said, Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Passage speaks about judgment being rendered, and that judgment's going to be rendered according to the things that was written in the books. And what was written in the books? How that person lived. May have people that lived this way, and it was pretty bad, but then you have people over here, maybe they lived even worse. And so that may be talking about the idea that there's going to be this varying degrees of punishment. Now, I want to say that there are and probably there may even be some folks before we leave tonight that are going to say that I believe there are some alternative explanations for all of those texts that I've just presented other than the idea of degrees of punishment in eternity. Not everybody is going to concur that the Bible teaches in those verses or anywhere else this idea of degrees of punishment in hell. Which is why I want to wrap this question up by saying this. I'm not sure that we need an absolutely certain answer about this. You've probably noticed this is my cop-out. I'm not given a definitive answer on this question. I'm not sure that this is something that we have to know. What we need to know about hell is simply this. It is awful. And it will be amazingly awful. I think beyond what we can even really comprehend. It will be indescribably wretched and painful for all of eternity. If it is true, if it is that, you know, you know, the, the, the horrible, they, they're going to be punished in this way, and then the horribler, they're going to be punished in an even worse way, that does not change the fact that all who are in hell, they will be suffering awfully forever. And what all of this is to say, is that regardless of whether or not there are degrees of punishment in hell, I don't want to find out. And neither should you. Maybe when we get to heaven, God will clue us in as to what that's all like. I tend to believe that when we're in heaven, we're not even going to want to think about that kind of stuff. We won't be thinking about that stuff. And so maybe it's just better left, alright? There's some verses... Maybe just draw whatever conclusion that you want about that. But at the end of the day, the conclusion that we all must reach is I do not want to go to hell. I don't want to go there personally. I don't even want to take the 50 cent tour of hell to try and find out if that is so. I want to go to heaven. I want to go to those lovely gates of Zion. And I hope that you do too. And so we extend the invitation of our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. 
Our Lord has done so very much to make possible a way, the way, for us to be forgiven of sin. I kind of even hesitated to talk about sin both times today because that's such a depressing and, and difficult subject to have to talk about, but we need to talk about it. Because it's only when we have an understanding of the terribleness and the awfulness of sin that we will then come looking for a Savior from our sins. Do you need a Savior? He is waiting for you. He is knocking at the door of your heart. He wants you to let Him come in and let Him reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life. Can we help somebody this evening to put Christ on in baptism? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you have enough faith working in you to confess that with your lips, if you're willing to turn away from sin, talk a little bit this evening about repentance, the important part that that plays in our salvation, then you're ready. You are ready to put Jesus on in baptism, to have all of your sins washed away, and to become a child of God. Love to assist you in doing that. I've had some experience in that water the last couple of weeks. I'd love to get in there again. If you are a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, we read 1 John 1 this evening. What are you supposed to do about that? You need to repent. Confess those things to God. Turn to Him. and He will abundantly forgive any and all sin if we will simply do just that. If there's anybody here this evening who needs to respond to the call of the gospel, maybe you just need prayer. There's just something going on in your life. You're just having a tough time with it. It's not, it's not a sinful thing. But you just want to solicit the help of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to come before this group and say tonight, you know what, I just, I just need your prayers. I need your help. Whatever your need may be, take advantage of this moment. Do it right now while we stand and while we sing.